Hi everybody and welcome back to the Activist Lawyer podcast. Today we have part two of our special edition episode with Phil Scraton. The response for part one was so incredible that we just wanted to come on and say thank you so much for all of your support and we hope that you enjoy part two. Make sure to follow us on social media and check out part one at activistlawyer.com. So Phil, you've been involved in many projects that we're going to touch on here in part two, but firstly, we know that you've played a key role in the Irish Council for Civil Liberties report and the research into death investigations and the right of the bereaved. So for our listeners out there who aren't familiar, could you provide some insight into this report and why it's so significant? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the, what, what we're talking about here is that the, the report that has just recently been published, death investigation coroner's inquest and the rights of the bereaved Mm -hmm. in um it's a research report for the irish council for civil liberties and it it's the culmination of two years work and it was delayed because i was ill and a lot of other issues but anyway um what we've come out with uh which i think is is unique um is uh the recommendation for a very precise charter in these situations for the bereaved in other words a seven point charter that commits the government uh, and its agencies to a whole range of issues, but it's the statements of rights, identification, postmortems, uh, pardon me, um, access to lo- location of death, crisis support, um, also establishes an appropriate time frame for coronial investigation. Because one of the biggest problems in these cases, as Ulster shows, is delay. Mm-hmm. And I think we also believe that very strongly from the work that we did with families in the South that uh, the Charter should affirm those who were bereaved, injured, and affected by disease have a right to privacy, uh, intrusive journalism, all of those issues. So we cover a whole range of issues. But at the heart of it is a a six-point plan for the structural reform of the management and delivery of the coroner's service, uh, a seven-point plan for further staffing and training of the coroner's service, and a 16-point plan for protecting the rights of bereaved families, including information provision and support, um, then obviously significantly improving the human rights compliant practices inquest, yeah. uh, and then also, and, and we make um, 12 recommendations on that, then also we address the issue of the media, and then further, further research that could be conducted particularly around institutionalized racism, where we're dealing with the Irish traveler community, for example. So what we did uh, for for this report was we went back 20 years to um, the uh, earliest uh, intervention, which was an intervention that was established to um, to reform the coroner's service in 2000. It, the review was published in 2000. It was a root and branch. Um, it was a root and branch recommendation, series of recommendations uh, for reform, for changes in the legislation, etc. Uh, and it had short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals. And it gave a 20-year span, which would have taken us to 2020, uh, for, for the full implementation. Um, what we show is that throughout that 20, ver- 20 years has been prevarication in the South, you know, even down to building a new new central coroner's uh, offices and court, and then with the slump, um, signing it couldn't be completed and then pulling it down. So 
you know, we've gone through all of this and there's been some legislation that has been partial that has been that that, that has been um that, that that has been delivered. But at the heart of our report um is that root and branch change. And it's fundamentally born out of our interviews with families who've been through the process. I mean, also with lawyers who have had to represent families who've been through the process and who are appalled by the way in which the process operates. And I think that there are issues here about delay. There are issues here about conduct. Families turning up and seeing other people around the court. And sometimes it's not often a a real court. It's a a village hall or whatever. And they see other people sitting around and they wonder who they are. And they realize there are other families here for other inquests all on the same day. In other words, they're going to be open and shut cases. You know, juries that are the same people. Every, you know, in, in some of the country areas, juries who are the same people, almost like a standing jury, brought in for cases who know the coroner, the coroner knows them, and so on. And therefore, they're malleable. Yeah. You know, so all of that process is light years away from what a full-time, fully functioning, fully financed coronial process should look like. Mm-hmm. And when we gave evidence to the government committee just a few weeks ago, what they were saying to us was, yes, but we have other priorities for reform in Ireland, and, you know, I'm afraid coroners, at a time of a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, coroners are way down our list. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, people understand that and they accept that until it's them, mm-hmm. until it's their family. And what I say to people, none of us know when we might become entangled with the coronial process. Sure. Nobody knows when uh, a sudden death or a death in unexplained circumstances or a death in a crush um, whatever could happen. And of course, I'm involved now with the team who are working on the Stardust inquiry. Mm-hmm. And the, the Stardust, um, Stardust is the, for everybody who knows about, I, I, I knows about death in social circumstances in Ireland, Stardust remains a blight yeah. in terms of its in, initial investigation and inquiry. A blight. It's a stain on the 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 um, process of inquiry and investigation and those new inquests are about to uh, to start and it was uh, it was a good decision that um that the strength of uh of arguments for new inquests was accepted and taken right. and yeah. um i think now uh, after all these years campaigning the sardis families have got a process uh, that they at least feel is going to recognise the that that go to the heart of the key issues that occurred around Stardust. So yeah. that is that's an interesting juxtaposition for me to be observing and working with the legal teams on on Stardust at the same time as producing the death investigation yeah. uh, and coronal inquests report. Absolutely, it's an interesting. Um emergence of the two and just you 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 mentioned there again that it's people centric and it's about bringing people victims families survivors to the fore and in any of these inquiries um, and investigations and any of the research into that and it just brings to mind I was happy to see I think it was Twitter or some kind of social media outlet that I saw it on um, the establishment by the Northern Ireland executive of 
uh, truth recovery panel. So the independent panel, um, I think it's three people sit on that. You're one of them to start this whole process. And I, I know there's been work done on it. And I know some of the legal team involved in handling um, cases for survivors and families of the mother and baby homes and Magdalene Laundry. So, I mean, I'm hoping that you could talk a little bit about your involvement. I know it's very new, but I think it's a very positive step forward to actually start from scratch and to maybe take some learnings from what happened in the Republic of Ireland in terms of the commissioner's report there. So how's that going? Well, I think it's significant that um, the two academic uh, academic voices of the three-person panel, it's chaired by Deirdre Mahan, who is... Uh, a, a former senior, or is a, a senior um, social worker in the North. Um, and that was a controversial choice because obviously social work as, a, as a, a, an agency and as a profession is under scrutiny in all of this. But it's precisely because it's under scrutiny that we would have needed somebody of that stature involved. Mm-hmm. But the other, apart from myself, the, the other academic is Mavo Rourke, Dr. Mavo Rourke, who... Um, who, who works at the University of Galway, and people will know um, will know her work for long-standing campaign work regarding mother and babies institutions uh, and Magdalens in the South. Um, we are very much at this embryonic stage of it. We have the website now established and set up, so people can go to the website and see mm-hmm. what it is we're 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 about. It's unique because for the very first time. We're engaged in a process which has been called, it's not a phrase I particularly like, mm-hmm. co-design. Yeah. And what that means is that we're working with all of those, um, those individuals, uh, and in some case families, who come forward uh, to actually progress um, their cases. And they come forward to give information and to provide direction to us, and we are working together yeah. to establish what the next stage should be. Initially, there was skepticism because people were sort of saying, we've had the major report, the yeah. academic report into mother and babies. Let's just go straight to a public inquiry. Mm-hmm. And indeed, a whole uh, over 200 families represented by one legal practice, they wanted to go straight for a public inquiry. That was fair enough, and uh, we respect that. Mm-hmm. And and, and that is really significant. But what this was, what was really important was to say, well, let's just spend these six months. This is not me saying this, but this was what was said. Let's spend these six months. We have the endorsement uniquely in, in Northern Ireland. We have the endorsement of all the political parties together. Um, so let's go forward and plan this yeah. next stage. What should it be? Should it be some form of independent panel? Should it be some form of public inquiry? What kind of public inquiry? What what statutory um, what statutory role should it have? Or should it be some some other form of commission? Mm-hmm. But this needs to be developed not just by those of us like myself and Maeve who have experience mm-hmm. of of these issues and experience of of all of the literature that surrounds them, but alongside those who are most affected, in other words, the individuals and families. And it's a challenge because, first of all, it's a challenge that they should trust us when they've been let down so much in the past. Secondly, it's a challenge to actually do it because there will be a wide range of opinion and we've 
we've gone far and wide, including across the world, to to invite people to submit their stories, to submit what they want. And so we're going to, at the in, in, in a six-month period, and we will do it by the end of September, we're going to make a full report which will recommend uh, what the next stage should be. Uh, and I think that when people say, oh, well, it's obvious, we don't really need to have this sort of an intervention to do that. Mm-hmm. When one gets into all of this detail, as you know only too well in the law, uh, it's complex. Yeah. And how best are families' views going to be represented? I, I mentioned a minute ago how the Duran in Jersey, mm-hmm. where there, were no, there was no potential in an official inquiry, but families were able to give their full stories. Mm-hmm. But I'm not in any way recommending that. But what I'm saying is that gives us an illustration of the broad range that not just the three of us, but also the families need to work through before we get into the detail of the recommendation. Yeah. And of course, you, people can, I think one, I think, and you will know this only too well, that pe- when any major event happens, people cry out public inquiry mm-hmm. because they think that is going to resolve everything, but they don't have, and why would they, a real knowledge of what, what constitutes a public inquiry mm-hmm. and the problems associated with public inquiries, who chairs it, who the expert people are who, who, who work to the chair, what are the terms of reference of a public inquiry, often so constraining that issues that people want addressed can't be addressed. How is the evidence taken before a public inquiry? How are people examined in a public inquiry as they would be cross-examined in a court of, of, of liability? Yeah. So how, how does that operate? And we need to work through all of those processes in order to establish what, um, the, the, what the, those who are most affected uh, by the mother and baby's issue what they feel is going to be the most appropriate avenue. And it might not just be one-dimensional. There might be other avenues that we would add to the process. So we're very much in the medium stage of that at the moment. We're very much in the evidence-gathering stage. And what I can say very clearly is that the, the stories, as you would expect, and as we know from the various TV and radio programs and films, the stories are devastating Absolutely. and the long-term impact is devastating. Yeah. And it can be anything from what really did happen, what happened across borders, what mm-hmm. happened internationally, right across the board to uh, very, very obvious issues like I can't access any of my records. Yeah. Surely I have a right to my records. And then in accessing records, finding that they are redacted. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, those processes, which are about institutional um, in, in institutions pulling up the drawbridge, that is unacceptable. Yeah. And so we have to look at the best way forward, and we're right in the middle of that work at the moment. That's fantastic. I mean, it's survivor-centric, and I think that was one of the failings of um, some of the inquiries and investigations that took place in the Republic of Ireland. And yes. you know, that's that's so fresh in our minds. I mean, it was January earlier this year that we heard 
victims and survivors talking about how they weren't listened to, how the facts weren't relayed correctly, etc., etc. So whatever way we look at it, at least this is a valid um, attempt to bring those stories into the formation of how you know this inquiry takes place, and I think that's crucial. And we look forward think, yeah, to following I, that. I, I think the, yeah, I think the important phrase there is in the the title of what we're trying to achieve it's a truth recovery strategy in other words what what is being said from the outset is the truth is out there Mm -hmm. and that some of those families know the truth only too well it's their lived truth they live through it they know that truth but what is important Mm -hmm. is to recover the institutional context in which that happened and people think oh well what we're talking about here you know, is the Catholic Church or other churches, or it is the Salvation Army, or it is Bernardo's, or whoever. But let's just pause for a minute, I say to people, and think none of those institutions could operate Mm -hmm. without the collusion. And it was collusion of medical practitioners, of social workers, uh, of uh, priests and ministers, and of a range of others in authority who, if you like, plowed the ground upon which uh, this atrocity could grow. You know, and I think that it's important that we realize that by homing in on one institution and one organization, however horrendous the stories from that organization are, we have to remember that that organization was being serviced and it was being serviced by state actors. You know, it wasn't just yeah. being serviced by a particular religion or a a, a, a particular histo- historical organization. It was being serviced by the context of the time. And it's not sufficient, uh, as I've always argued in my work on truth recovery, it's not just sufficient to say, oh, that happened then. Yeah. That was in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, and to say, well, we'll have an apology for what happened in the past, and that will lay it to rest. Well, it won't lay it to rest when somebody at this particular moment in time or over the last couple of years has discovered their own history and want to know what on earth happened to my mother, what what on earth happened to my sister or brother. Who am I? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think the hardest thing for me to to face, because I, I know my history. I, kn- I, I knew my mother and father. I knew my sister. I, I knew my local. Yeah, there were parts of my personal history which I don't know, and I probably don't want to know. <laughs> but that's not the point. Yeah. I have a good knowledge and understanding. When, at, at the age of 50 or 60, you suddenly discover that the history you had, you thought you had, is not your history. Mm-hmm. The impact of that is remarkable. To say to somebody, oh, just deal with it and move on, yeah. is an outrage. You can't do that once you discover the truth or the part truth. And what that sets you on the road to is full discovery of the truth. Absolutely. 
Well, we look forward to seeing how that work develops yeah. um, with great interest here. And we've had speakers on before. It's something that's um, really relevant to, to what we're trying to do here as well, is to try and expose um, that type of work that's going on. So thank you for sharing the details around yep. that. Thank you, Phil. And obviously, before before we finish off, it, it's important to touch on activism as Obviously, this is the Activist Lawyer podcast, and <laughs> one thing that stands out to, to Sarah and I is your reluctance to be to be silenced and to say things that need to be said, even when it's not the popular thing to do. So, um, Phil, how would you, speak to, speaking to our listeners that are listening now, how would you inspire those to carry out the same work that you do, uncovering truths and that reluctance to be silenced by others? Well, um, it's a good question. Um, I never really set out to even work through the answer, Jack, And when I first started. Um, what I would say is carefully, never overclaim, never make allegations that you can't substantiate. There's lots about Hillsborough I know, but I can't substantiate it, so I can't put it into the public domain. We are, you know, the work I do, I, I suppose people describe me and some of the articles I've written are about being an activist, uh, an, an activist academic. So you're using academic work um, not only for publications and for the benefit of your university and knowledge and all the rest, but you're also doing it because you believe that it has uh, an activist end, end, end goal. So encouraging people, my own students, for example, many of my former students, some of whom now are professors, because that's how old I am. Um, you know, uh, I, I think it's about carrying a torch, and it's about carrying the torch for truth. Yeah. I think that's really, really significant, you know, um, but activism has to be done carefully. Our institutions mitigate against it. I know there have been serious complaints made about me in my successive universities, and I know who made those complaints, and I know they've been made to the highest level. Mm -hmm. um, I understand that, and I know that happens. And as a professor, you just have to say, well, you know, I'm in a senior position, and are you going to take me on? Okay. <laughs> but if you're a young academic with a career in the, in the balance, yeah. And promotion in the balance, that is much more difficult. Sure. So it has to be done with stealth and it has to be done carefully. Um, and certainly not to be, to, to be brash, but never to overclaim the in inequalities and structural uh, inequities of our system are so great. You don't need to overclaim them. Mm -hmm. They speak for themselves, as we've heard in the last, in the last minutes, you know. Yeah. Um, and of course, I would encourage people to do this work. One of the great things one of the, I suppose it's, it's one of the privileges of doing the work is when you do a math lecture and, you know, sometimes when I'm talking about math lecture, I'm talking about thousands of people, that when you finish, that there's a queue at the, at the table of people asking advice about how to go forward or writing to you afterwards and so on. And I think it's about, um, it's about truth, it's about never overclaiming, but it's also about being careful and cognizant mm -hmm. that... Um, that people are lent on. I mean, my children, I was alone with my children when they um, were very young, when I had a phone call to an ex-directory number that was a death threat. And it told me what time I took the kids to school. It told me all of the detail of where I lived and everything else. And it was a cultured voice. Um, that shook me, not because I thought that the death threat was real, um, but it shook me because it was a reminder that you're being watched, you're being observed. 
and that's gone on ever since, you know, um, less now than it used to, uh, it, it used to, but, uh, you know, I, I also know that that, you know, former, former senior people in the prison service approaching my vice chancellors and mm-hmm. stating that uh, I should, I haven't even talked about my prison's work, that I should keep my nose out of their business, you know, and often doing it not by name, you know, not naming you because people know who it is they're referring to. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us, Phil. It's it's really hard to hear that you had to deal with that. So, Phil, just to finish off, um, we've one question to ask you, um, hoping, hoping you can answer. What was the highlight or highlights of your career so far? If I'm being serious, it was the Pilsner Independent panel um, being the primary author of that report and delivering it in Liverpool Cathedral to the, the mass of Pilsner families. And as I went through my overhead, my overheads in the hour and a quarter that I delivered it, um, watching the incredulity uh, and on the faces of those in the audience and the um, the five minute standing ovation that came at the end, not just for my work, but yeah. for the panel's work and for all that we had achieved. So that was a defining moment in in the cathedral in Liverpool. Yeah. And the other highlight, to be less serious, was being invited onto Desert Island Discs, <laughs> and I that Desert was Island smacking. <laughs> So much so that when the phone call came through, I thought it was one of my pals winding me up, <laughs> and and that was that was um, that yeah. was the other that was a highlight that because is it gave highlight. me the opportunity. Yeah. Well, it gave me the opportunity to show to show that um, social justice and the politics of what I do is also bound up very much in the music to which I listen and. I opened it with Barry Kerr's The Leaving Song, um, which talks about Irish migration. And, of course, that's where it all started, when my mother's family, two generations ahead of her, um, got stuck in Liverpool on their way to the United States. And as they say, the rest is history. history. And you were also um, provided with the... uh, was it the freedom of the city of Liverpool, wasn't it, as well, Phil? Yeah, that, that, that's, yeah, I wasn't going to mention that. That is, <laughs> well, having turned it. down, <laughs> well, I turned down a, um, an OBE um, yeah. that, that I just thought was outrageous. Who <laughs> <laughs> on earth thought that was a good idea because it gave me the opportunity to expound on why I was wanting to turn it down yeah, exactly. and get into issues around <laughs> British colonialism and what the British Empire really means. But also to make the serious point on top of that, that is a serious point, but mm-hmm. the other serious point that I don't do the work for that kind of that kind of a, 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 of a reward. But the night that all the families gathered in St. George's Hall in Liverpool and um, I was given the freedom of the city um, that was special, and that's special because it's a recognition by your peers. It's yeah. not a recognition by, you know, those on high who think it's a good thing to have your name on something. It was real in-depth recognition um, by my peers, and to have that awarded at the same time as posthumously it was given to the 96 who died at Hillsborough, and also to... Um, to uh, Kenny Dalgleish and Marina Dalgleish for the work that they've done mm. 
not only on Hillsborough, but on a whole range of charities that they've been involved with. It was a great honour. Oh, yeah, that was a great honour yeah. too. Absolutely. Well, there's so, so much to be proud of. And it's just been fantastic having you share those achievements and your work to date and your work continues. So it would be fantastic to have you on again to update us. I'm sure our listeners will be enthralled by what we've discussed today. Thank you. So thank you so much, Phil, again, for giving up your time. Well, to all of you, um, to all of you, thank you so much for having me um, to, to Jess and Jack. But I have to say to whether it's both of you, um, Sarah, the one outside and the one inside, all the best wishes for, <laughs> Thank for, you. for the birth. And I, held it I hope it goes well. <laughs> and I'm absolutely relieved that I didn't bring on um, that I didn't bring on the birth in the studio. So thanks a million. It's a relief. Thank you for that as well, Phil. <laughs> we, we've so much to cover. We hope that you come on again um, to talk about um, the continuation of your work with the Truth Recovery Strategy and also um, other aspects of your work. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank you all so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed part two as much as we did. That is 20 episodes done and dusted of Activist Lawyer with some amazing guests coming up. So make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Activist Lawyer to keep updated for all upcoming guests. And remember, if you'd like to contribute to our blogs or feature on one of our podcasts, please visit ActivistLawyer.com. Thank you all so much for listening. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.